Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, if you know 1 Timothy, uh, and you might be wondering why are we jumping into this for one week, because we don't normally do this. We normally walk through books. I'll explain that in a bit. But, but 1 Timothy, you know, if you, you know 1 Timothy, you know 1, 2 Timothy and Titus, they're pastoral uh, epistles. They're uh, letters of Paul written to Titus and Timothy to help instruct them on the building up of the church, what, what should be the church's mission, what should be its structure, what should its leaders look like, and and, and Timothy is certainly all about that. Paul is instructing Timothy specifically. He's establishing this church in Ephesus, and, and he's directing it, and Paul writes to give him some, some instruction on what should be the heart and the mission, what should the leaders look like. And what's interesting, though, in 1 Timothy, you get to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and all of a sudden, you've got this, this book that's primarily been about the church and its mission, and, and you find a chapter that's almost completely devoted to the issue of money, which seems a bit odd. Why in the world, in a book that's all about the church and the mission, would you, would you devote a chapter to the issue of money? Well, well my opinion is uh, that the reason that, that Paul devotes this chapter to the issue of material things and money is because Paul knows that nothing will sap a church or a Christian of their gospel effectiveness like a material spirit. Nothing will sap a Christian or a church of their gospel effectiveness like a materialistic spirit. And uh, I think that Satan has it in his arsenal of tricks that if he can just get us as believers and as a church to set our hearts and minds on material and earthly things, our life will be less about the souls of men and women and more just about the bottom line of our bank accounts and the stuff in our homes. And I don't know about you, but I think Satan's pretty effective at this, isn't he? And I'm speaking from personal experience this morning. Uh, why are we in 1 Timothy 6? Because I set it in my heart to memorize this chapter because I knew just as Timothy needed to be reminded, don't you dare get caught up in this stuff. I need to be reminded because it's a danger for all of us. And so um, preaching to me is personal. And I mean uh, by that that when I'm preaching, I'm, I'm just sharing with you what God has been teaching me. So if God steps on your toes a little bit this morning, just know he's been stepping on mine a whole lot. My thought was, I've been miserable. I might as well make y'all miserable too, all right? So we're just all going to be miserable together this morning. And let the Lord convict us as we seek to be more effective for him. So with that in mind, let me pray for us. And Actually, let's read this because first service, I went long and I didn't even get through all of it. So I want to get all of it. I want you to at least hear it all, okay? Because we believe that God's word is powerful. I think just by hearing it, it could affect somebody. So I want, I want to make sure we get all these verses. So look with me. Verses 3 through 16. Let's just read this. We'll pray together. We'll work our way through, see how far we get. 
Verse three, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and he understands nothing but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions and a constant friction between men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment for we brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either if we have food and covering with these we shall be content but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who made the good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the king King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion forever amen let's pray together God we thank you for your word that is perfect and God we believe that your word is living and active That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have set your word down for us in this Bible that we hold today. And Lord, in this sacred moment, I pray that you would speak to us by means of your word and your spirit. And you would change us so that nothing would hinder us from being faithful to the very end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the preface to the heart of what Paul gets to in this chapter is verses 3 through 5. And in verses 3 through 5, Paul is addressing false teachers. If you've read and know 1 Timothy, there's these false teachers there that are leading them into meaningless discussions. He addresses them in chapter 1. He addresses them throughout the book. And basically, he says that here that these uh, false teachers disagree with the Bible. They disagree with right doctrine, with sound words, with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine that conforms to godliness. They disagree with the Bible. And really the heart of the book is, is, Timothy, don't you get away from the word of God. You stay true to the Bible. And that's important for us to hear, isn't it? That we are a people of the book. 
And if you come to Lenexa Baptist, you need to know the content of all of our teaching will always be the Bible. If you want to talk politics, psychology, aliens, the price of tea of China, whatever, that's fine, but not in here. Not in our Sunday school classes. We're going to stick to the Bible because we really got nothing else. I'm assuming that none of you came to hear me today. You want to hear from the truthfulness of God's word. So we don't stray from this book. But you know what's interesting is when we, when we stick to the absolute truth of the Bible and we preach the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and him alone to save, what does the world say about us often? They say those people are arrogant. They may not say it, but they're thinking it. How dare they tell us how to behave and what to believe And then oftentimes they'll think that we're nothing but simpletons. We're we're just not sophisticated. We're not learned. We're not educated like the rest of the world. We need to move on from these archaic ideas of the Bible. Do you know what Paul says? We're not the ones who are conceited and we're not the ones who are simpletons. He says they are conceited and they understand nothing. Don't you love the fact that Paul doesn't pull any punches? Because the height of arrogance is to think that you know more than God. And that you've got to move on from the Bible. And you've got, you got a better knowledge of how the world should work than he does. And so he's, the heart of this is stick to the Bible. It's these false teachers that are trying to get you to go astray. Don't listen to them. And then he kind of leads into this discussion of material things by saying that the, at the heart of these false teachers is a greediness. That they are supposing... In verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. That they have taken the things of God and really it's not even about spirituality or righteousness or holiness or godliness. It's really about lining their pockets with more stuff. And are there people out there like that still today? That it's really not about the souls of men and women. It's about the bottom line of the prophet and how much more money they can put in their pockets. And so Paul is going to enter into a discussion. He's saying, don't you dare be like these false teachers. But the question that that comes out of this is if, if we're not supposed to be a people who view godliness as a means of gain. Because remember, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of belief that if if you're really spiritual and holy, you'll also have riches. And so it begs the question: how should we view material things? How should we view money? And so he launches into this discussion with Timothy Timothy about how he should view the stuff of this world. And and what I want to do this morning is give you three C's. So we're going to look three C's. I'll try to make them clear. And then four F's coming out of the last C. Three C's, four F's. It reminds me of one of my high school report cards. All right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Man, I made all B's. I was good. All right? Um, so three C's for it. Let's look first, the concept of contentment. The concept of contentment. Look at verse six. He says to them, they got it half right. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So he says, godliness with contentment, not just gain. He says, is great gain. 
that there is gain in godliness, but it must be con- combined with contentment. Now, now when, when we look at that word contentment, because this is critical, when we look at that word contentment, we got to ask ourselves, what does he mean by contentment? Because quite honestly, it's, contentment has become somewhat popular today, even with people who have no desire for godliness or the gospel. Um, you know, there are people out there today who want to simplify their lives, just be content. They live in those little bitty homes and sell everything in the organic farming. They want to live off grid, which is funny stuff. You know, they're, they don't want to be stuck in traffic, but now they're, now they're about to be eaten by wolves. Isn't it funny? You know, um, you just trade one worry for another, it appears to me. But anyway, side note. Man, I'm getting sidetracked this morning, all right? So let's stay focused. So what, are, what kind of contentment are we talking about? What we need to know is the contentment that Paul is talking about here is a contentment that can only be found in Christ. That's the contentment. Biblical contentment is a contentment that is gained not by having more stuff. And it's not a contentment that's gained by having less stuff. I mean, sometimes simplifying our lives is a good thing. I'm not saying that's, but, but that's not even really the biblical idea of contentment. It's not about how much stuff you have or don't have. It's about having Christ in your heart through faith. And Paul explains this in Philippians, my favorite book, uh, when he talks about the contentment of Christ. You remember in chapter one, he says, but me, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain. He says, you want to talk about gain. I got gain in Christ. One day I'm really going to gain because I'm going to be with him. Uh, he'll say in chapter three, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, listen, all that stuff, I can lose every bit of it as long as I have Jesus. In fact, that's what he says in chapter four when he says, not that I speak from want for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both in Having an abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through Christ. The the whole message of Philippians is, (laughs) listen, a bunch of stuff, not any stuff. You can put me in any circumstance as long as I have Jesus. I got great gain. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if you have Jesus Christ, you are eternally wealthy. There's no greater gain than Jesus. Because when you have Jesus, no matter what you face in this world, as Paul says, your light and momentary afflictions are achieving for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. If you have Jesus this morning, it doesn't matter if you've got a million dollars or you barely got two nickels to rub together. You have, according to Peter, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That sounds like a pretty good inheritance to me, regardless of what you have today. So what we need to understand is he's talking about when you have godliness and contentedness in Christ, you are eternally wealthy Uh, Money can make you wealthy, but it can make you content. Only Christ can make you content. But then he he wants us to understand, Paul is very practical. He wants us to understand how, if we're going to have that kind of contentedness, we we also have to understand uh, what what possessions mean. we got to have a right understanding of possessions. So look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, so we uh, cannot take anything out of it either. So he says, if you want to rightly understand possessions, you've got to think about both your, your birth and your death, your entrance, your exit. Um, I've been in the room when two boys were born, Wyatt and Walker, 
And uh, neither one of them uh, came to the world toting a bag of goodies. They brought nothing. They had no backpack, nothing with them. And when they came in, they weren't upset about it. They were crying, but they were happy to have the provision of their mother. But they didn't bring anything. And then he tells us not only to think about our entrance. We didn't have anything when we came in this world, but think about our exit to think about our death. And in the words of the great theologian George Strait, I've never seen a hearse with a luggage rack, all right? You brought nothing in, you can take nothing out. All this stuff that we work so hard for in our life and we, we seek to gain and we sweat for, listen, you got to check it at the door. Uh, when I was at, in my church in Alabama, there's this one guy that was buried with his putter and it was funny to me. I thought, that guy don't need it and poor pastor like me, I could, it was a good putter. I thought I could use that thing, you know? Uh, I made a confession in the first service. I might as well tell y'all too. Now everybody knows it. But, I w- you know, oftentimes I'm, as a pastor, I'll be the last one in the room. The, the family will view and then, then they'll leave and I'm the last one in there. And it's, it's it, you know, pretty sacred time. But on this one occasion, I was thinking, I could take that putter and nobody even know, you know. <laughs> he ain't going to need it, you know. I didn't take the putter, all right. I left it in there. Seemed like a waste to me, but anyway. Listen, life has been described as a chess game. A lot of kings, queens, knights, bishops, pawns. But at the end of the game, all those pieces are scraped off the board and put in the same box. We brought nothing in, we can take nothing out. And, and some of you are saying, well, pastor, that, that sounds all well and good, but I still got to pay the bills. You think, well, great. Possessions don't mean anything. But... And Paul knows that. He, he, he understands that. And so he gives us some, some practical, practical explanation here. Look at verse 8. What, what should be our expectation when it comes to this stuff? Well, he tells us in verse 8, if you have food and covering with these, we shall be content. He tells us right here, when it comes to to physical, material things, this should be our level of expectation. This should be our basis of contentment. If we have food, if we have clothes, covering involves both clothes and and a roof over your head. If you've got food and clothes, that's that's the baseline for contentment for us in this world, is what he's saying. And I look around this room, all y'all are clothed. We don't let any naked people in, so you're doing all right there. And when it comes to food, y'all all seem to be prospering, some more than others, but you're doing well, all right? So we're all doing okay. When it comes to spiritual things, he says, all you need is Jesus. When it comes to physical things, he says, the baseline is food and covering. But you see, our problem The great hindrance to us experiencing contentment is a direct result of us buying into the lie that all of this other stuff has become a necessity. You know, in 2017, 205 billion dollars were spent on advertising. P 
pitching you a line that your life will not be content if you don't have one of those really cool new GMCs with the tailgate, you know, which, by the way, I'm like, man, that is so cool. And, and I told Faith, it would not be a good week to go buy a new truck when I'm preaching on contentedness. But, but anyway, but don't you feel that? They're always telling you what you got to have. That if you don't have one of those uh, really cool cameras that can, can video or with, with your phone, that can video your, your family and HD quality and cinema, you're a poor parent. And we buy into this stuff. And it's, it's striking to me because all these things that, that we, we now see as necessities, don't you think that previous generations before us would look at these things and say, those are excessive luxuries. And now we've turned them into necessities that we can't have, we, if we don't have them, we can't function. And listen, so long as we start making luxuries necessities, we're always going to have a hard time finding contentment. And so Paul says, you want to know the baseline level of expectation it's food and covering. It's not about what you possess. It's about who possesses your heart. And then he gives us a caution. Look at verses 9 through 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation in verse 9 and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. That if you set, here's what he's saying, if you set your heart to get rich, you are walking next to an abyss. You are in grave danger. He's saying if, you, if the, the primary desire of your heart today, if when you're laying in bed at night, what occupies your thoughts and minds is the accumulation of more stuff, what he's saying is you are in a dangerous spot because when your life is driven by the accumulation of stuff and money, you're going to be tempted to do what? You're going to be tempted to cut corners, aren't you? If that's your goal, if that's what you're pursuing, you're going to be tempted to cheat on those taxes. You're going to be tempted to cut corners. You're going to be tempted to do things that you shouldn't do. You're going to be tempted to go places you shouldn't go, to become friends with people you shouldn't become friends with. And Paul says you are in danger of plunging your life into ruin and destruction. And so he goes on in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And it's important here for me to reiterate, listen, money is not the problem. Wealth is not sinful. I know plenty of men and women who are wealthy. God has blessed them abundantly and they are content they are a blessing to be around. And the fact of the matter is, as I thought about some of these people this week, most of them didn't start out with the goal of getting rich in the first place. They were just seeking to follow God and the Lord blessed them. And I really believe with all my heart, sometimes God blesses certain people because he knows that they will be a conduit of blessing. And many of those wealthy people are underpinning missions and ministry all over the world today. So wealth is not sinful, but the love of money is always sinful. And you might ask yourself, well, how do I know when I'm toeing the line? Well, listen, if your mind is constantly occupied with how much money you have in your account or your savings account, 
Or if, on the other hand, you're constantly worried about losing it. Or if you have leveraged yourself into so much debt that you have become a slave to the lender and you really aren't free to do what God would have you to do because you have enslaved yourself to debt. Or maybe it's the constant thought of your mind of keeping, with the, keeping up with the Joneses or creating the illusion that somehow you've made it. Or you're constantly comparing yourself to your neighbors or what they have. And what Paul says is you are in a dangerous spot. Because he says some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That, that piercing... The, the word picture there is piercing through an animal. It, it's the picture of roasting a pig on a spit. You know what I'm talking about? Where they roast those pigs and they pierce them through and they just roast them over the fire. That's the picture he's creating. You want some examples of this? We know many examples in the Old Testament. Achan, Joshua 7, you remember, they go in to take the promised land. There's certain things you shouldn't take because we're not in this for the money. We're trusting God to supply. But Achan, his heart was towards material things and money and wealth. And so he, he goes over and says, I think I'm just going to stash a little of this over the side. Nobody will know. Well, what happens? God knows. And they call him out. And the story don't end well, believe me. You remember Gehazi? Gehazi was Elijah's servant, and, and Naaman comes to Elijah, and he needs to be healed of leprosy, sends him down to the Jordan, he's healed. Naaman comes back to Elijah and says, hey, I'm so grateful for the healing. I want to give you all this money and all this wealth and all this stuff. And Elijah says, listen, we're not in it for the money. God don't need your money. But Gehazi, what does he think? Elijah may not want it, but I sure would like having a little bit of that. And he follows Naaman down the road and says, hey, I know my master doesn't want any money, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. We sure could use some money. And he comes back, and Elijah says, where have you been? He said, I didn't go anywhere. And Elijah says, I know exactly where you've been. And the leprosy that was on Naaman is now on you. We can go to the New Testament. You can look at Judas. We just studied him in Matthew. Started out well, but somewhere along the way, his eyes got off of God and onto the gold, and all he wanted was stuff. And when Jesus didn't deliver as he expected, he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He later regretted it, took it back to them. They said, call someone who cares. And he went off and hanged himself. You can go to Acts chapter 5. You can look at Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a piece of property and gave some, kept some back. And the problem wasn't how much they gave. It's never about how much you give. Listen, that's between you and the Lord. They could have given more. They could have given less. The problem that they had is they lied about how much they gave to make themselves look good and to look more generous and to look more wealthy than they actually were. You know what I found is most people, when your heart is driven by the accumulation of stuff and money, oftentimes it's not even just about that. It's about having popularity. It's about having power and having prestige and the illusion that you are actually somebody. And that was the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, and that story doesn't end well either. In fact, even in Timothy, you've got Demas. You remember Demas in 2 Timothy. Paul is going to write to Timothy and say, he abandoned me for the love of the stuff of this present world. And you want an even more current example? I had a friend of mine, went to college with him, extremely talented and very gifted. 
And in fact, when I was in college, he was an encouragement to me. He was doing great things for God, went off down and got hired on a very large church in Texas, was working as a missions pastor and doing great things. And do you know where he's at today? He's spending 10 years in prison because he stole over $800,000 from his church over a six-year period. And I look back at that story and say, where along the path did this guy take his eyes off Christ and put it on the stuff? And I do not dare stand in judgment today because but by the grace of God, so go I. And if you think you're not susceptible, you better take heed lest you fall. We're all susceptible. And so Paul gives Timothy some commands. Look at verses 11 through 16. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These are the commands. And what's important before you even get to the commands, how does he refer to him? He refers to him as man of God. And this is so important because the decisions you make and what you do will be driven by your identity. Who you are drives what you do. Your identity will always dictate your activity. So here is a man, and and Paul wants him to know, Timothy, here's who you are. You are a man of God. And and listen, Paul had no illusions about who Timothy was. Timothy was young. He was young. He was timid. We know he was timid. And he was also frail. You remember, he has to tell him, you know, Timothy, you're going to have to take a little wine for your stomach because we know you've got some stomach issues and you're struggling. You're gonna... Here's a guy who was young, timid, and weak. Does, does Paul write to Timothy and say, hey, I know you're weak, timid, and young? No, he says, Timothy, you're a man of God. And can't you just see Timothy, his shoulders straight? That's right, I'm a man of God. And I'm here today to tell you that God knows all your frailties and all your weaknesses today. But what he wants you to hear is if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a man or you are a woman of God. That's your identity. Your identity is not in the stuff of this world. Your identity is not in your job. Your identity is not in your house. Your identity is not in the car you drive or how much stuff you have. Your identity is in Christ. And if you make your identity anything other than Jesus, you're going to have a different value system. You're going to make different decisions. And you're going to wind up in a different destination. But we are men and women of God, and as God's people, we make different decisions, don't we? That's the heart of what he's saying. But you, man of God, you flee these things. You act differently. It amazes me that so much of our lives is trying to impress a world that cares nothing about God. We spend all of our energy wanting to make people think when they come over to our houses, we are really amazing people because we got cool stuff. And don't you think God just says, this is laughable. We are to go against the grain. We're to, listen, we're to stick out like sore thumbs that people say, these folks are just downright odd. And we say, yes, we are. Because we're going different direction. And we got a different destination. So he says, flee, run. 
You flee. You run from this mentality towards stuff. You run from it. And then he tells them, you, you pursue. You can call that follow. If you're getting the Fs, it's flee. And then he tells them to follow. Pursue. That word pursue, it means to chase down, to run after. Meaning these things don't just happen. A person doesn't just gain righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. That, that, that old saying, well, just let go and let God. That's garbage, folks. You don't float into holiness. You don't float into godliness. You don't float into greater faith. You gotta fight for it. You gotta get up in the morning and you gotta chase after it. Paul is telling Timothy, boy, what my uh, seminary professor used to tell us. He used to say, any old dead fish can float downstream. But it takes a heap bit of wiggle in the tail to go against the current. And listen, we're to be a people who have a heap bit of wiggle in our tail. Amen? We're chasing after something of great value, of godliness and righteousness and faith. We don't have time to go into these things, but follow after these things. If you're going to pursue something, pursue these things. And then he says, fight, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Fight. The the Christian life is a battle. The lamb has won the, the, the war, but the battle still wages. And the difference between a defeated life or a victorious life is the willingness to fight. So many Christians, they're just floating through life. Hoping to wind up in a good place. Listen, you gotta, you got to fight. Great Christians are not great. This is what I found because I've been around some great men of God. And here's what I've learned. Great Christians are not great because they're smarter than everybody else. Great Christians are not great because they're more gifted. Listen, we're all gifted in Christ Jesus. Great Christians are not great because they got more of the Holy Spirit. Because we all have as much of the Holy Spirit as each other. Great Christians are great Christians because they get up early and they go to battle. They get up early and they get in God's word and they get on their knees and they seek the power of God to be greater than they can be on their own. Listen, if you're okay with being an average Christian, having an average life and an average marriage, that's fine. You just float. You sleep in. Leave your Bible on the shelf. You'll probably do okay, and you just might make it into heaven. But listen, I don't want to get to the end of the road and realize that I wasted my life on a bunch of junk that never matters. Um, I've been quoting Braveheart. Why it says, Dad, you got another Braveheart. Get something else, Dad. But listen, there's a great scene in that movie. You remember he's calling them to fight, and and and. And they say, we'll run and we'll live. And what does he say to them? He didn't run. You'll live for a little while. But many years from now, dying on your bed, would you not trade all the days from this day to that for just one chance to go back, just one chance to go back and tell your enemies they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And I'm here to tell you, I have seen Men dying on their beds who had given a lot of days and given up a lot of stuff to go back and tell the enemy, he can take all my stuff, but he cannot take my spiritual legacy. 
we got to be willing to fight, to go to battle every day against the enemy and to fill ourselves with the word of God so that we can achieve the life that God has called us to. And then finish, take hold of the eternal life. That's finishing. Finishing. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And he goes on to tell Timothy about, you do this, you keep the command until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this idea that I'm running to the tape knowing that I'm gonna stand before God. I'm gonna be evaluated, not on the basis of my sin, because my sin, if I know Jesus, if I trust in him, my sin is covered by the, by the shed blood of Jesus, but I'm gonna be based, just on the basis of my works. I'm gonna have to give an account for my life. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. Each one of us is gonna have to give an account. And so he says, in light of that, you finish Timothy, don't you get drugged down in this junk anymore. You finish. My uh, grandfather was a, a marathoner, ran 50 marathons. And he loved, uh, I ran cross country, a little bit of track, and as often as he could, he would be there. And he didn't really care how I started. I could start at the back of the pack. You know what he cared about? How I finished. And when I talk about finishing, I'm not talking about whether or not I finished in first, third, fifth, or 15th. What he really cared about is when you came to that last 100-yard stretch or you got into that last quarter mile, boy, then he expected you to kick it into another gear. And you lay it all on the line. And I remember him running next to me at a cross-country meet. And you know what he was yelling as I came in view of the finish? You know what he was yelling? Finish! Finish, Chad! Finish! And I'm telling you, there are days when the material things and the junk of this world becomes an attraction to me, and I can almost hear it in my ears, my grandfather saying, you finish. You finish. And some of you need to hear this today because I guarantee you, in a crowd this size and those that are watching online, there's somebody in here that you've been drugged down to the material things of this world and you're about to make some really dumb decisions. You're cutting corners. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. You're going places you shouldn't be going and you're about to make some really bad mistakes that are gonna plunge you in destruction and ruin. And you need to hear me say this morning, fight, flee, and finish. Don't you dare. No matter, this is what I often think of, the pleasure my good friend, Jerry Sheridan, he loves to talk to me about that moment when he sees Jesus. And he says, I can't wait to go kiss Jesus on the cheek. And you know what he wants to hear more than anything else? The pleasure of hearing Jesus say, well done. Listen. There is no momentary pleasure in this world that is more valuable, more precious to me than that moment of experiencing my Savior's pleasure when he says, well done. So I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm here to tell you today, whatever it is, it's not worth it. What do you do? Listen, 
As we start a new year, you're going to fight. you got to be in God's Word. You better be reading the Bible. What are you doing, Christian? It's your only means of offense. Set that alarm a little earlier. Drag your sinful flesh out of that bed. I don't care how angry you are. And get whatever substance, mine's coffee. You grab a cup of coffee, whatever you got to get. And you sit down and you crack open God's word and you beg him to speak to you because you know there's no way you're going to make it today unless you have his word. Man can live on bread, doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. I got to have nourishment from God today. And you pray and you better have some accountability. Men, I speak to you especially. Who are you accountable to in your life? Who right now in your life isn't afraid to call you to the side and say, cut it out? Whose teaching are you sitting under? What small group are you in where you have a small group of people that are instructing you on the basis of God's word? And nobody's ever made it. Listen, you don't ever get to a place where, listen, I've been a BSF leader for many years. I don't need to sit underneath. No, Sunday school teacher, even me, doesn't matter. You better be sitting underneath somebody's instruction on the basis of God's word. We all need it. And can I just be real frank with you? Church attendance. Let us not forsake the assembling of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another and all the more as the day is approaching. You need the church. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. You need a local body calling you to account and challenging you to walk with Jesus. Listen, let's fight. It's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I, I, I just pray for anybody here this morning that they don't understand. They don't get this. They don't understand why we would fight like this. They don't understand why we would flee from these things. They don't get it. And it could be because they don't know Jesus. Maybe they have a false perception of salvation or Christ. They think it's all about religion. It's all about going to church, church attendance, or doing good deeds. And that's not gain. That's a burden. That's not a blessing. That's painful. And I pray today that they would know that they could never get to you on their own. Their only hope is Jesus. You knew who they were and all their sin. You knew they could never achieve their own salvation. That's why you sent Christ. And today... I pray that they would run to Jesus and they would find in him a greater gain than anything this world could ever offer. Lord, I I pray for us that do know you. I pray, Lord, that we would put aside any sin that might so easily entangle us and help us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Well, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ and the gain of Christ's salvation this morning. There'll be pastors here at the front, love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Maybe you just wanna pray right where you're seated or pray with a pastor this morning. Whatever God is doing in your heart, whatever he's leading you to do, know today you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.